0: Welcome to this episode of Trueworth Tech Talks. Today we'll be hearing from Craig Taylor. Craig is an ex-hospital DJ turned digital and e-commerce project and product manager. He founded and ran his own digital consultancy business for over 10 years, which he then sold to 10 Alps in 2010. During an illustrious 25 year career, Craig has worked for all the likes of Lookers, North Face, Co-op and more recently, media giant Dentsu. He's worked and led on all aspects of the digital life cycle, including strategy, discovery, project product management, delivery, testing, and training. And he takes a proper training mentality to everything he does. And that really comes across in this episode. He's a great facilitator, a real people person who enables others and is a big advocate for empowering people the benefits of this when delivering any technical project. He's also a passionate advocate of mental health, work-life balance and well-being. So sit back and relax and I hope you enjoy this chat. Hi Craig. Good afternoon. Good afternoon. How are you you doing? I'm good. I'm cold but I'm good. um right your video's not come up yet uh let's just have a look ah yep, there you amazing. are there you are right are you ready for this i am <laughs> um listen thanks for joining me i really do um appreciate it um and i know that we, we everyone's got such busy lives these days so when everyone, anyone takes the time to come and talk to me and have this discussion, um, especially on a podcast, because it feels like everybody's doing them at the moment. Um, yeah, I really appreciate it. But what I wanted to just sort of pick you up on, first of all, was that um, you, you used to be a DJ. I think technically I still am. I am <laughs> done radio
1: since 1997 and technically that makes me a DJ put me in put me in front of a couple of turntables at a wedding I wouldn't know where to start but (laughs) put put me behind the mixing decks uh mixing deck in a radio studio I I see myself as a presenter more than a DJ to be fair
0: um well I think I told you didn't I when I was a kid I had this sort of you know little tape recorder and I used to pretend to record uh radio things for myself as a kid at that so you know uh now doing a podcast and um, it feels like all my childhood dreams are coming true and i can learn from the master maybe
1: <laughs> stealing from the thieves don't steal all my good ideas um it, yeah i think that the, the thing for me as i present more than a dj is i love my music but for me the radio comes live when you've got guests which i think was is, is the reason why there's a nice say going into podcast because it, it, it is two way there's nothing worse than shouting into an empty room
0: yeah absolutely and and i want this to be very conversational and and sort of we'll go with the flow but i, I want to come from a layperson's point of view on your you know expertise we're going to cover a few things today including the challenges that you know digital agencies face these days when they're delivering projects for clients Um, You're also going to talk about how um, agencies can avoid certain pitfalls that kind of go hand in hand with running an agency, whether it be challenging clients or projects. We're going to be talking about embracing the new norm, um, working remotely, um, fluid market, employees and how that's changing, safeguarding and well-being of those employees as well. And we'll also look at some of the big boys maybe what they're getting right, but also perhaps where they can improve um, and how small and more agile companies and agencies can actually win business and retain business. Um, and obviously, we're going to talk about how the landscape's changed in your 20, 25 years of being in the industry. So do you want to, do you want to just sort of start by just giving, you know, for people who don't know you, Craig, giving people a bit of an overview of, of your background and where you've come from, if that's okay. Maybe, and, and include the, the hospital DJing, <laughs> feel free. Well, the hospital DJing
1: bit was where it all started back in 97, which actually when I, I, I'd, I'd just come back from London. So um, I did an engineering degree and in the mid nineties, went back to college in London to do a print and publishing diploma with the London College of Printing. So it was kind of yeah. a, I enjoyed the engineering, but I wasn't a, a real pure science, pure engineer. There was still a little bit of creativity trying to come out. So I liked the fact that the printing publishing gave me that, that that creative outlet as well. But when I came back up to um, the North, I ended up working for Time Computers, who at oh, that point, of, yeah, yeah they, they, they were huge. They were one of the really early mass market producers of affordable home desktop PCs yeah. um, up there with Tiny, Evesham. This was just when Dell were in the very, very early days. And obviously, 97, 98, the internet was an idea. Email was patchy. People were just starting to wake up to this thing they'd heard about called the internet. Um, it was still very much in the academic realms and when I was working at Time Computers I realized really quickly that we were selling in uh, Windows uh, 98 PCs and Windows 98 was flaky at best yeah. so the, the chances of a computer landing on somebody's desk on Christmas day working <laughs> and them knowing <laughs> what to do with it yeah was was, was was slim to none and I just put a, an advert in the paper in the Berlin Express for um, to help people set up their their new Christmas PC and actually show them what to do with it, I had a deal with a local provider to get people uh, dial up pence per minute dial up to the internet. So it, you know, it was it was really early days, and I think that's where the, the for me everything I've ever done has been about training and empowerment and learning. So right from those very early days, I mean it it was it was by luck more than anything else by chance that. I started training people in those really early days. I, I learned the basics of HTML and CSS and the visual basic, which did me no good stead whatsoever, because that was that was dying out at the time. But, you know, two out of three ain't bad. And I started training, and and, and very quickly people were asking me to build their websites. Um, I mean, the first big gig I ever got was training co-op. They'd spent millions on a piece of software called Oracle Portal Builder which nobody knew how to use so we 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 set up a training suite for them in altingham and trained them for six months on 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 these but then obviously the, 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 the the agency took off um i ran an agency for 10 years we focused very much on, I mean, it was really early days of e-commerce. So we we were starting before e-commerce was even a thing. But we, you know, we, we were in the early days of building database-driven websites, giving people the ability to update their own website, which was pretty unique in those days. Mm-hmm. Web design companies did not like handing control of updates and editing to the customers. But we just thought, well, why not? What? Why, why are we looking at it from what we can get out of it? Customers want to maintain and manage their own website. So we gave them the tools to do it. And that, that was up until 2010. I sold my business in 2010 to a, a print publishing company. We created a digital arm of that print publishing company. The, the company was called 10 Alps. We created 10 Elps Digital, gave them all the news, uh, all the the, the the tools that they needed to push the business on and to embrace digital. They had all this content that wasn't indexed, we so kind of repurposed it. So we gave them kind of a business model. And then since that, I've, I've done a mix of training um consultancy a lot of digital um project management contract work worked on CMSs CRM systems obviously now e-commerce is kind of growing up a little bit but for me I've always gone back to that that that, that training background I'd, I'd, I'd much rather give somebody the skills empower them and let them learn themselves than just do things for people um so there's always an element of that I, I always I always enjoy when there's an element of training or can kind of teaching or learning in a in a role
0: and that's a bit like you know today's project manager or change manager that's kind of this hybrid person really between project management business analysis and and, and change i guess the, the 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 stuff that you learn as a trainer that's stood you in good stead for the future without you even realizing it maybe well it it it, it
1: has i mean the the there is Still, I mean, well, I'll come back to the, the bit about project management, but there is still a belief in digital that if you want to learn a new skill, you have to learn it yourself. Yeah. We don't we don't tend to have agencies, don't tend to have the capacity to teach people new things. And genuinely, I've worked in agencies where the, the the mindset has been if you want to pay rise, learn a new skill and then go and get a job somewhere else. Because <laughs> pay rises in digital aren't a thing so there is a, a a belief with um digital that people teach themselves but i think there is still a reluctance for businesses outside of agencies to learn things themselves so then there's there's, there's a bit of a a gap then of, of them wanting digital solutions digital products they don't really get it they don't really understand it so to me if I was in a business point of view, if it, coming from the business point of view, I was going to an agency, I'd want to feel comfortable that I know what I'm talking about. So I'm having a conversation as an equal with them. Yes. And that's genuinely refreshing. And what I enjoy is, is when you're doing training, there is a slight shift in people's mindset. They are coming to you wanting to learn. So their minds are open. They're, they're, they're much more receptive to being told things. And that's very difficult when you're in an agency dealing with a customer um to encourage them to learn so that i think that's where the, the, the training bit comes in because people are coming with the mindset they want to learn they want to listen
0: and okay so um if clients want to learn and they want to listen then what what are they if that's one challenge they've got to overcome what are the other sort of unique challenges do you think then that agencies these days are facing when they're delivering products and projects I think the for me, 10, 15 years ago, agencies,
1: employers were in control. Now it's the employees that drive the big cars. There is a big change in, um, I think once upon a time, businesses were always focused on chasing clients. Now I think it's on chasing staff. I mean, you'll 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 know coming from a recruitment background, now it's it's really important to keep hold of the staff that you've got. Yeah. So I am seeing a slight change in more of um a value of the staff they've currently got, a little bit mm. more training, better well-being in, in in agencies. But I think the biggest struggle for agencies is still keeping hold of their staff. Um, I think a lot of agencies still are running to the bottom. They're still buying clients. There's still a mindset that, you know, we have to have all of these clients. We can't, you know, they're, they're, to me, they're, they're buying work by being incredibly cheap, really undercutting everybody else, not appreciating that once they've got that client, they're going to make some profit from it. I've seen so many agencies that, that have this idea that, that more clients are better. I think that's a, a big challenge for me. It's having kind of the mindset that it's the quality of the clients you have, not the quantity. But I think that's now sort of changing. I think that the, the keeping hold of what you've currently got and realizing that, that there's no point just constantly chasing new uh, clients, constantly changing new, uh, chasing new staff. So there's more of a value of kind of what you've currently got. I think that's the biggest challenge. Um, keeping up to date with technology. Is, is is now a lot easier they they they, they should be able to there's, there's a lot easier access to to learning new skills so i think that that that's been sorted out go back 15 20 years ago everybody was just trying to see what worked. a lot of stuff didn't work a lot of competing frameworks things just didn't i mean i remember the early days of magento it was a terrible piece of software it just didn't work but you had to kind of find that out so i think there's probably that has improved um but I still think there's a, there's an awful lot of, of, of agencies that chase work that has no real value.
0: It's, it's interesting what you said about the retaining of of people within the digital agency world, and I I have seen that in the recruitment world as well. Um, <clears throat> but for a long time, it always felt like to me that it was it was kind of accepted that people moved around different agencies there was never any real it was almost like a a given thing well i've been here two years this other big media agency or ad agency have, have, have headhunted me to go and head up their digital you know offering i'm going to go there i'm going to take all my clients with me and it feels like that sort of mad men culture has continued especially in london but do you think that's that's changed now is is there more is there more realization that that there is value in keeping people or is the culture just changing?
1: It's interesting you mentioned the mad men and, 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 and this is, it's a good analogy. I mean, I remember working in agencies and you'd go out and say, I wonder where so-and-so went or they went to yeah. this agency. And you know that they'll go to that agency, they'll go to another one, they'll go to another one and in three years time, they'll, they'll, they'll come back to the same agency and there is yeah. that merry-go-round. But that's yes. really difficult to maintain and manage because every time somebody goes, you're losing all that knowledge. You're losing the relationship that person had with the client. You're losing their skills. They're an important part of the team. They've got to be replaced. You've got to train somebody up. You've got to hope you get the right person that's got the right fit for the agency. It's very short term, but it was accepted. It doesn't really matter. People will spend a year. I still think it's it's unrealistic to expect somebody to spend three, four, five years in a business, but actually my, my partner's an HR consultant, and she was saying that, you know, businesses now have got to accept that if they can get two good years out of somebody. That's pretty good. Mm. People will naturally move on, but that there's, there's absolutely no point in just having a merry-go-round of people going round and round and round. It, do- it doesn't benefit the client or the, um, of the business, or the, or, or, or the employees. It, it, no, nobody wins in that situation.
0: And then, so, so we're talking about people maybe taking clients and then taking projects with them. How, do, how does an agency avoid those pitfalls then? How do they, you know, when it comes to running a digital agency and handling multiple clients when they first start, what are the pitfalls and how do they avoid them?
1: It, it's impossible not to... To believe, I mean, when I when I joined Ten Alps, so we we had a small agency. There were, there were never any more than six or seven of us at, at, at a maximum. When I joined Ten Alps, we joined a huge business, and pretty quickly, a lot of my clients that come with me left because they liked the small agency. They liked being able to ring me, get a direct response. They didn't they didn't like the change in culture that came with me being part of this huge conglomerate. That's I, I had to accept that the the, the people that I I'd, I'd had clients for eight nine ten years and and they were personal friends of mine so in a way when I moved to this big conglomerate and I was no longer uh, a, a big fish in a small pond they kind of lost that it's it's inevitable you are going to have people who leave with their clients. You've just got to accept that. But you've got to hope that you you, you build a a good enough relationship so the value is in the whole team, never never in one individual. It's unlikely a developer would take a client with them. It tends to be the more senior people when you're going to get management buyouts or splits or people set up on their own. But, you know, we're we're, we're all Um, grown-ups. These these things happen. I think you've got to plan for it, accept it. I mean, I remember back in the early 2000s, you know, we we won clients from other agencies and some of them could be really petty about it. And it suddenly came to me and said, look, Ray, thank you very much. You've done a great job, but we're going somewhere else. What's the point <laughs> in leaving with a real smell? You might as well just because invariably they will come back. And I yeah, remember thinking yeah. to myself, okay, you can go to that other agency they're not going to do what you want because it's not possible. It's not, it's not me that's just saying that. Um, and they will come back. And obviously, you don't want to burn your bridges. I think it's just about being grown up and accepting that that is the way that
0: it that it works. Sounds like it's quite a pragmatic way of looking at it and knowing that there's a, a bigger picture and there's a in the in the long run, they do come back potentially. Have you seen that happen to you in the past then?
1: It's, it's hard to me. I mean, I I, yeah. I remember one particular company who was a, a recruitment consultant and he went to a, an agency run by a friend of mine <laughs> and I rang the guy and said, just just, just to let you know, um, Richard XXX is coming your way. Um, it, was, it, was, it was a challenge. Um, he came back because he didn't get what he wanted. And I think, you know, there's that grass is always greener. So yeah, I, I, I've seen it happen, but I think with, with, with age and experience comes the realisation that, Manchester is a big city, but it's still quite a small pool. Yeah. You you can't leave a smell somewhere and it not it not get noticed. People will will talk about, and if a client leaves, there's absolutely no point in 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 ending that friendship because they they, they may well come back. And invariably, if you upset somebody, <laughs> chances are you'll be working with them in two years' time. And I've had that as well. So <laughs>
0: Um, what about then um, moving on to, we, we're talking a little bit about retaining staff then, people moving from one agency to another. Um, how much of the recent movement in agency staff going from one place to another? And we talk about either account managers, account directors, digital project managers, et cetera, going from, you know, digital agency A to digital agency B in Manchester, say, how much of that is down to those companies not embracing new ways of working, do you think?
1: Well, I, I am I am now a firm believer. I mean, I, I did a talk to the BBC a few weeks ago and my, my opening line was in 1996, I think it was. I was selling ISDN telephone systems with video conferencing and telling everybody, Believing it to be true that within five years we we would have um, got we, we would have done away with face to face meetings, all using video conferencing. <laughs> Twenty years later, in a pandemic, we've finally now accepted that we can still work remotely. We can work with more flexibility. We can do video conferencing. Don't get me wrong; I don't think it, it, it is the be all and end all. I still think there is definitely a place for face to face contact. But in a way, the belief by a lot of employers that if if employees weren't sat there in the office, they weren't working, has been proven not to be true. People can still be trusted. Uh, People are still productive. And that couple of hours of of, uh, time in the morning and evening going backwards and forwards to the office can be used for keeping on top of your health and wellbeing and making you a more productive, happier and rounded, more valued employer. So I think the ones that value that and sadly, it is slightly, <laughs> the slightly older generation that running businesses that haven't really embraced that. Like I say, my partner's an HR consultant. She's working with a a, a very traditional, conservative company at the moment, and they're really anti remote working. But I think what they're going to have to accept is if they don't embrace it, their employees will go some go to somewhere that does. So, like I said, you know, it, it's it's now. A shift and you hear all these terms like quiet quitting which yeah if you if if you know it's this idea that that people are reluctant to really push the extra hours and the extra effort because they they need to know there's an immediate value to that um I don't really agree with the quiet quitting I think if you if if you want to just do that that it's it's a bit of a work to rule and I think um, I've always said I'm happy that I work some extra hours if you kind of get them back and if it's t- for the for the greater good. But again, employees ought not to take that for granted. And I think all of these things, um, if you don't keep hold of the staff and you aren't flexible and you don't realize that there is there is this power shift now to employees, you you will lose them and it will be become increasingly more difficult. And I've read some great reports over the last few weeks about CEOs in America talking about trying to introduce hybrid working in some industries it's working and in some industries it's not. And in digital, there is very little real reason why people have to be sat at a desk in an office.
0: Mm. Yeah. I mean, we, we, I, I've experienced it myself, you know, over the last two or three years that um, interviews are now held over teams or zoom. Um, and as long as a stand-up's done in the morning and people are there and they are delivering what they need from a digital or tech or data point of view it's all outcome based so as long as you're delivering on your outcomes that's been agreed there shouldn't really be a problem i think that there is value in people getting together and collaborating and and being in a in a place but i think the place of work um has changed It's, it's it's more now about kind of networking socializing with your peers collaborating I think is, is is important I think it's important to get people together I mean we we've you know we've we've talked about this with the true worth collective about getting people together not just talking online um but yeah you're right absolutely and I think the companies that have got that flexible attitude to where people work they're the ones that are going to win the war on you know tech or digital talent in the future, absolutely. And I, I,
1: don't think we, we, we dispense with face to face altogether because I. No. You know, we, 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 we both talked about um, wanting to start networking groups. Um. Since Christmas, I've made much more of an effort to actually go out and meet people, but that's outside the office. That's that's learning new skills, meeting new people. I mean, one of the one of the reports I was reading was um, the CEO of, of very group um, who was talking about how difficult it is to onboard people remote, remotely because they, they never get an exposure to their colleagues. And I've had it, and I understand how difficult it is when you're working with somebody that you've never met. And um, The last couple of contracts I've done, while I was working with people in, um, in Colorado and in Italy. And then the last one, people were all over the world and I met very few of them. And it, it does make it difficult to form those relationships, to form those levels of trust. So I think what the CEO of of, of Very was saying is that when they onboard people, there is a uh, there, there is an acceptance that they're going to have to have people in the office for a certain amount of time. Get them used to the technology. Get them used to the culture of the business. Introduce them to the people that they're working with. Go and have those water cooler mo- mo- moments. Go to the pub in the evening and form those personal relationships. Build the trust. Build the empathy. Then, by all means, go and work from
0: home. But you've had that initial grounding, and I think that's that that is really important too. That's really that's a that's a really interesting forward-thinking way of doing it, isn't it? Giving them a kind of three months grounding in the business, building up that trust both ways, and then allowing people that extra flexibility makes sense, doesn't it?
1: Yeah, and I I read something about the number of businesses that are trying to put in place tracking software, and talk about an absolute own goal. I mean the the negative PR from these businesses that just haven't trusted their staff and have tried to put on a, a tracking software and productivity software and, and, and tried to work at it. It's, it's an appalling thing. I think we've got to appreciate that whether it's it's in a business or a business to a client, the, these relationships are grown up relationships just yeah. as personal relationships are. And if you have a relationship where there isn't mutual trust, it ain't going to work. And I think that's just as important with employees as it is with personal relationships and again it's the same with clients I mean I talked about agencies chasing clients and allowing clients to to be too dictatorial I've I've worked in agencies where they're terrified of the client and saying no to the client and I've had to sit there and say no is an incredibly powerful word (laughs) because you 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 wouldn't have that that one-sided level of 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 an unequal amount of respect Mm. in a personal relationship you'd say that's a toxic relationship so why do we allow that with clients why do we why do we why are we not as a sector comfortable
0: saying to clients no (laughs) it's interesting isn't it and uh, um i think it's that boundary thing isn't it it's that ability to set some boundaries with your client with your staff how you as an as an owner you've got to put those boundaries in place because otherwise you'd be overrun. I know I find I have that challenge literally every day. Um, And you're right, it's very hard to say no to a client. It's like, yeah, I'll do that. Yeah, I can do that. Yeah, when do you want it by? Um, But you're right, you, you you need to look after yourself there, don't you? And that brings me on to, so when you're an owner of any sort of digital business and you've got people working remotely for you, how do you um, how do you look after their well-being? How do you make sure and monitor, okay, let's not monitor their work, but how do you monitor how they feel and what's happening with them and are they happy if because that leads right into retaining those people, doesn't it? And I'm sure your partner will have experienced this herself it it's it, it's
1: what I it's what I was talking to the BBC about a few weeks ago. So I think the acceptance that working remotely, Um, engaging with people remotely is different. It's not going to be the same. It is going to be different. There are lots of tools out there. And actually the the last place where I was contracting, they, they, they brought a tool in which allowed people to say on a scale of one to 10, how well they felt that day, which was okay, but it doesn't get to what's underneath. And I think that's when there's this personal connection that we still need. So I've often said, when you have large meetings, you lose that personal contact when people start turning the, their, their their cameras off. You lose that ability to read their body language. It's a lot easier to read. Some, you know, <laughs> we all know that yeah. what you say, what you say, and what you're telling me from your body language is very different. You, and when you lose that, so I think making regular personal connections. I've often said, don't make every meeting a work meeting have yeah. personal meetings have meetings where there is no yeah. agenda you're not talking about work because you would do that anyway yeah, if you working in an office you'd have you have your lunch time yeah. where if somebody rocks up and starts talking about work everybody moves to the other end of the table <laughs> um you go to the, you go to the pub uh, the pub at night and i know the temptation is to talk about the boss and talk about the work but invariably when you have these after work events that starts to tail off and people start talking about their own kind of Personal things, so I think I think having that is is, is really important to make sure that um, meetings are small, that you can see people's body language, you engage with people in non-work activities, have a bit of fun. Um, I, I, I in the last place where I was working, I was helping with with the training because the girl that was delivering the training of teams had never done any non-face-to-face training. And I kept saying, you know, I kept kind of in the chat, kind of saying to it, you need to tell some to turn the camera on. You need to get them engaged. They haven't answered anything. There's all these little tips and tricks that, I mean, I, I started training using Zoom a long time before the pandemic. So I'd learned the tricks and the tips of, of making sure you engage people, looking to see when the last time somebody engaged was somebody to turn their camera off. It's awkward, but you call them out. So you ask a question, you give it specific to that person they might
0: not like it at first because they may be doing something else, but it's just making sure that everybody's bought in. Is it worth kind of having a conversation with that person directly? First of all, though, to, to kind of see if there's any issues or challenges, because not everybody feels comfortable um, talking on teams. I think it's for a lot of people seeing themselves talking away kind of fills them with a bit of dread. So how do you get a, without, putting them on the spot and making them feel even more uncomfortable is there a better way of engaging with them well i've
1: I, what i've liked is when we've done meetings where we have little breakout groups so you have yeah. if, if particularly if you've got a large group of people very difficult to do that one-to-one and you're right i've i've what i'll tend to do is message somebody and say can you just put your camera on and if you don't respond then you're just gonna get a little bit more heavy on them and kind of kind of call them out but you do that in a training room anyway so why shouldn't you do that online i mean i've done face-to-face True. training where you yeah. but you can see then somebody's body language they're not engaged they've got the phone out they're not focusing so you, you you've got to watch for that because that's part of the skill of training is making sure that people don't switch off because not everything that you're talking about is going to be relevant to every single person. So you've got to kind of watch them switching off. And I don't think that's any different when you're doing online, but I do like the idea of breakout groups. Um, I've used things like Miro boards to get people engaged. So when you okay. do a SWOT analysis, don't just, you know, I'd actually give them the opportunity to get onto the Miro board and move things around. So it's actually add things to the four quadrants of a SWOT analysis because it it gives them something to do rather than yeah. just listening.
0: Yeah.
1: Um yeah. And, and my own personal thing is meetings should never be longer than an hour. If you're going over an hour, you've got to accept that your your audience has switched off. Um, yeah. You know, we we don't have the attention span for that. But I I've been in meetings where you know that 75% of the people haven't talked at all in two hours. there's there's no there's no that's not productive that's not productive at all so breakout groups using tools things like kind of Miro boards getting people to actually start to type things in and and discuss it and the smaller groups then people are more engaged
0: and I I guess at the start of a training session you have those um and any sort of presentation or event these days you have like um, a moment where the presenter Talks about right, okay. So exits are over here. If you hear a fire alarm, we're all going to go that way, and they set expectations, don't they? And I guess you do the same in a training session. You kind of go, Right, this is what my expectations are. I'm going to do this, I'm going to expect some feedback. So, should that be the way you know when you talk about agendas for meetings when you are talking about business? Should you be just setting that expectation in 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 the same way that you would do with a live event then i th- i
1: think you should be that, that there is nothing I, I called it when I, when I did my talk I called it meeting hygiene, and there are lots of things you can do I and mean, one of the things I always said if, if if you if you're doing a longer training, so meetings keep them to less than an hour, there's no reason to have. Any more than maybe half a dozen people in a meeting for more than an hour because that's a day's worth of man time lost. Um, if you've got more than five or six people in a meeting, it goes on for more than an hour, you've lost your focus, you're not you're not targeting and, and, and focused enough in that meeting. Um, and I think you've got to that 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 meeting hygiene idea is to make it a better environment for the people that are in there. One of the things I always do, whether it's face-to-face or on Zoom, is give people, if, if you're doing a training session that's longer than an hour, give people five or 10 minutes off. Because you, I know for a fact, if they get an awkward or an uncomfortable email in the middle of that meeting from their boss, their mind is gone. They're, they're focusing on all of the subconscious stuff. You know, what does my boss think? What does he mean? that? that what do I need to go back and say? I am Am I in trouble. What? Does it, and they lose their focus. So I always say, after 45, 50 minutes, have a break. Call it a comfort break, but you know that people are going to go away and start answering the kind of urgent emails. You've got to accept that. You do it in a face-to-face meeting, so why not do it in an online meeting as well? And it's those little bits of courtesy to your audience that mean your audience has a little bit of respect for you because you know that they're a part of the meeting as well. They're not just there to listen to you preach.
0: Yeah, and I think that comes across... Massively from everything you've said there, it's all about empowering people and considering them, but also ex- having an expectation of them to take part. I'm I'm going to change the subject slightly. We're we're going to it's not a great segue, but we're going to segue anyway. um We did talk a little bit about how when you went from owning your own business to then it being kind of bought and you being part of a all of a sudden a bigger conglomerate as you as you described it things changed and I think that we've both talked a little bit about how you know bigger companies whether they be recruitment companies consultancies software businesses as businesses scale and get bigger and bigger it's harder and harder to manage I mean you know we've seen Twitter losing 75% of their staff and they're still going um how do smaller agile digital agencies learn from maybe the mistakes that the bigger companies make in your opinion i think they all make the same
1: mistakes they just make them on a grander scale i mean <laughs> you've, you've, you've talked you've talked about twitter losing
0: all of their staff i mean sorry not losing got rid of <laughs> well yeah. and well, some, absolutely yeah they, they they haven't quite quitted have they they have literally
1: quitted they they, they quite noisily quitted in yeah. a lot of cases yeah um I think the mistakes are the are, are the same they're just on a different scale I think when you've got a smaller business I my biggest concern with us was having the right mindset and making sure that when people joined and I was actually talking to somebody about this the other day we, we had a really good ethic we we worked hard I created time for them to learn things so we had a little bit of a It was something I learned from Google when Google had Google Labs, you know, the idea that Friday afternoons, right, client works out the way now. You've got a few hours, guys, to learn new skills. And that was great. And they really enjoyed that. And actually, we had a a couple of little spin-off businesses. We created our own email marketing platform. We created our our own survey tool um, way before things like MailChimp and SurveyMonkey and the like. But the, the guys learned those skills. Yeah, you know what every couple of weeks I just randomly say right Friday afternoon we're gonna go to Pizza Hut my shout. and we kept it like that we brought one person in and he pushed the boundaries of what I thought was acceptable I had a fairly relaxed dress code but he'd walk around in shorts and white socks and no shoes and it started, it started to change things because people were like oh wait a minute well he's getting away with that very untidy and it, it was it was really funny I I'd always talked to them very much as adults and I kept asking them to just be tidy, to not leave coffee stains on the walls because I've just painted them and things like that. And he didn't listen. So I had to do the the, the probably the most uncomfortable thing I've ever done, which is actually literally right. I, I, I wrote a letter and print, I put it on the desks. And the guys that knew me knew that that was like the final straw for me. This guy then went absolutely nuts about that. He'd never been spoken to in that way. And I've, I've tried all the grown-up ways. He hand-wrote his resignation letter in pencil and left it on my desk. But that was such a – it really changed the dynamic. So when mm-hmm. you grow your business, it's really important that you get people in that, that don't change that dynamic. When I joined Ten Alps, they were – very sales focused. The sales guys were gods. They got away with all sorts. Lying was just part of, 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 of it's it, it, part of the way they worked and uh, they were making up stats, making it, it was, it was a really different thing. And I, I, I had to keep in a way, almost physically keep our guys separate to those guys. Cause I didn't want the kind of, I, I was trying to create in that department, the feel of a startup, the feel of an agency you know, we were agile, we could work quickly. We had lots of ideas. We tried things out. If things didn't work or if we made a mistake, we, we covered each other's backs. We didn't wa- wash our dirty linen in the public. If somebody made a mistake, you accepted it. So when we had this huge um, business, when we tried to scale with 10 Alps, they had an HR person who wanted to be involved in everything. And I couldn't make decisions myself. I had to go through HR. We lost the agility. We lost the personal touch. So I think when you're growing your business and a, a lot of the agencies just want to grow their businesses. And I just like, don't be careful what you wish for guys. Bigger agencies mean bigger problems. And I think for me, a lot of agencies lose the fact that, you know, you can be more profitable without having to really scale. But if you are going to scale, you have to have in mind what you want. What you want to scale to? Because, like I said, it's not just different problems; it's the same problems on a bigger scale, and that will really crush the reason why you started a business. As a business owner, that 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 will be terrible. You brought your child into the world, and you really want to keep them going in the same direction.
0: Yeah, it's it's interesting you talk about that. I've, I, you know, I think recruitment is a kind of similar situation. I think the, the the accepted way to for a owner of a recruitment business is to achieve more profit. It's about growing that headcount, but I think sometimes you forget actually that you can generate additional revenue or better margins by maybe providing a better service and charging more for it maybe without having to to scale and throw people at the problem well, it is, we,
1: yeah scaling bigger bigger businesses just inevitably mean bigger problems and I, I look back now we didn't value ourselves when I had my own ages we didn't value value ourselves anywhere near enough we should have been charging twice as much but I learned that from experience when I started seeing what other bigger more grown-up agencies were charging
0: yeah
1: and I remember ringing my old kind of Um, right-hand man he was kind of the the technical architect of the business and I said Michael we should have been charging twice as much because I've seen what the bigger agencies in Manchester are charging they're charging twice as much but they're not delivering twice as much value so I think there's this this belief that small can't be great but actually it can and I, I like small agile businesses that can flex very quickly they can try new things um but you've got to have the mindset of that. so if you're scaling your business, I think you've got to be really careful what you wish for because bigger companies bigger problems.
0: Got it. And um, when you look back then over the last 25 years, I'm going to ask you how the landscape has changed. but before I do that, what would you um, what would you say to yourself now to the young Craig first getting into the uh, the industry? now that you know what you know what what one what one bit of advice would you give Craig uh, 25 years ago then
1: I think for me we we created some great products in 2006 7 8 I I I remember after a few years being a little bit losing clients winning clients it's it's a bit of a merry-go-round and I was talking to a friend of mine the other day who started his agency exactly the same time as me. He's still doing it. He accepts that he's bored, his words. And I think I would have looked back and said, we should have stopped being an agency in 2007 or eight and chosen, mm-hmm. we, we had we built our own email marketing platform called Thingy Mail. We built a, a, a survey tool called Usensio. Usensio was being used all over the world, but we were just basically running it at cost and we didn't make any money out of it. We should have, I, I look back now and think it's a couple of missed opportunities there. I, in my bones, I knew that running an agency wasn't what, what I wanted to do. I'm a products guy. We should have, I think I would say, <laughs> take creative ones, like little we'll tap on the shoulder and say, pick one of those and run with it. Because we think email at the time for an email marketing platform was really clever. We were doing some really good stuff. But we didn't stick at it, and actually, it's one of the problems when we joined Ten Alps. They didn't want us working on our own kind of pet projects. But that's what I would say is, is, is that we should have picked one of those two and, and flex from being an agency into being a digital business.
0: That's interesting, isn't it? So, like, maybe a SaaS product potentially there. Well, yeah, I mean, like I say, we you know I look back
1: now, particularly things like Mailchimp. We were we were ahead in those days. We were ahead of Mailchimp. We allowed people to build their own e- emails. We, we, we'd we started work on a um, kind of a WYSIWYG editor for people to build their own templates.
0: Yeah. That was our
1: idea before things like MailChimp came up with the idea. So we should have kind of stuck to that.
0: Hindsight's a beautiful thing, isn't it? <laughs>
1: it's also rather
0: frustrating, isn't it? <laughs> <laughs> I know how you feel, don't worry. Um, okay, Craig. Well, and and then, all right, talking about, the last 25 years. Can you give me a few things where you think or feel that the landscape's changed in those last 25 years? How, how, is it, how has it changed? And what, what are your predictions for the next five, 10 years maybe? I think the prediction is an interesting one. What
1: I've seen change, obviously when I started in 98, 99, um, desktop PCs, the web was an idea wasn't really there. Obviously, I've seen the rise of e-commerce from the very, very early days of um, really simple e-commerce sites now to fully e-commerce businesses. Um, I think data is the big thing now. I, I, I think back in those days, there wasn't a real value o- other than your email marketing list I think now value the, the value is in the data and the insights. There are obviously as I'm sure where there are a lot of businesses now that are collecting all this data. It's a huge, yeah. it's a huge value to know not just what your, what your customers' email addresses, but their behaviors, their actions, their emotions, their triggers. I think that's changed. Data now is is really is the new currency. And, and obviously the, the likes of Facebook, Instagram, the, the, they're the big ones that monetize that. Um I think. We've got slightly more mature technologies. Back in those days, there was still an assumption that you start a lot of things from scratch. You learn very uh, basic things like, you know, you learn visual basic HTML. So there's a lot of frameworks now. I think development is a lot quicker. You start with a, a foundation and build on it. But it's something I was always banging on about in the late 2000s was there's, there's very rarely a, a, a good business case to start from scratch. Mm-hmm. You go out, you find the fundet, you find the foundation. You don't create your own Lego blocks. You go and get them, and you build something from it. So I think that that has changed. Um, like I say, we, we've gone now from the clients being the valuable thing to the employees. Employees being a, a big thing. I think there is obviously now. I mean, when I started, there was no social media. So now you know, reputational damage, PR, all of those kind of things are really, really important. The way that we market things has changed. Obviously, my day, and I remember teaching SEO in the really early days, since 2002, 2003, um, I was teaching people how to do ethical SEO because there was a lot of the black hat SEO. Yeah, that's That's gone to a certain extent now. It, it, it's, it's all about the social channels. You know, you are selling through social channels. Um, I remember when Google launched (laughs) pay-per-click and now you're looking at, you know, 10, 20, 30 pounds a click. It's incredibly expensive. And I worked at an e-commerce business that spent half a million pounds a month on PPC. So you've got to look at, but for half a million pounds that you would give to Google for PPC, what could you, what could you do to sell in a social way? Selling peer-to-peer and word, you know, word of mouth before it was, Word, word of digital ones and zeros was always the best way our best leads were always recommends yeah so I think we've kind of gone back a little bit now so, so social is a appear to be a peer recommendation engine if you think about it mm. so I think I think that is, is only going to get more and more important I mean we've seen the rise of influencers they're nothing other than great networkers yeah, yeah. And they're, so, they're, they're, they're realizing yeah absolutely yeah and there's nothing wrong with that and I think some of them do take it to excess and they get a bad name, but they're very skilled at what they do and fair play to them.
0: Yeah. And, and um, I can't finish a podcast or, or even have a podcast at the moment and not mention AI and uh, chat GPT. <laughs> <laughs> Surely that's going to disrupt um, digital agencies, like it's going to disrupt every single industry. How do you think that's going to play a part then? Well, in 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 the in the first place, if it does disrupt, great,
1: because you look at the likes of the Googles and you know going right back to the start, your Yahoos and your MSNs, and then you know your Facebooks and your Twitter. They, they they've all been disruptive, and we, yeah. we've 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 learned and we've grown from it. So I still think AI is an interesting concept looking for an interesting problem to solve. I don't really understand where the value is in in asking chat GPT to write a blog post for you. Um, There's all this concern about whether students are going to cheat from it. It will have a place. And maybe what it does is is replace repetitive low value content generation. But I don't think it's going to replace the human ability to understand sentiment to read people's body language to write with emotion and feeling that's never going to take off but it may replace a lot of the menial tasks I, th- I think what we'll find is as it as it matures and i've i've, I've looked at ai and i've looked at chatbots and i did some work last year with a company was looking at whether to replace certain things with chatbots they have a place but they're still a long way off People still know when they're talking to a chatbot and not talking to a real human, and I don't know whether we'll ever capture that ability to completely, um, to to to, to for someone not to know that they're talking to a piece of AI. But there will be a place for it, so I think it, it will maybe write some of the content that is mundane that that isn't that high value. But I don't I don't think it will replace high value human to human content.
0: It it, it feels very much like to me at least that um you know 2012 or 20 2010 2011 2012 was always like the year of the mobile and when i went to a lot of agency events where people were talking about marketing and advertising everybody was banging on about well this year is going to be the year of year of mobile and it didn't really become the year of mobile until you had 4g 4g changed the game the technology changed the game in the same way that um, the jump from dial-up to proper broadband changed the game. Um, Boo.com were, were a fabulous product, but they just weren't ready. The technology wasn't ready. Mobile, the same. Everyone was creating mobile applications, but not really knowing why or what. Now people know, that, it's, and it's taken five, ten years, hasn't it, to kind of go, ah, right, now I know what I need to do in an app for it to be a proper app and how to get maximum value from it. It feels the same thing with machine learning and AI that people have been talking about it for so long. And it's only now with the, with this all of a sudden chat GPT being in, in everyone's faces, people go, Oh, Oh, right. So that's what machine, you know, to, to the, to people that the layperson is like, Oh, right. Okay. Well, I still don't get it, but now I, I see what it actually is and what it can do because I can play with it. I think I think you're right. It's going to take a bit of time, isn't it? And it's going to a lot of a lot of talk about curating um, it and making it a thing. And it's what you can then build from it. Am I am I rambling there or? <laughs> no, I, th- I think you're right. I think we, we, with things like AI,
1: we 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 give it the things to do to allow us to put a little bit more humanity into things that they can't. And I think at the moment it, it's it's a new technology. Like I said, I think there's a bit of kind of supply trying to work out what the demand is for it. But that's great. We'll, we 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 will we will test it. We'll work out what what works and what doesn't work. We'll find a place for it, like we have done over the last twenty five years.
0: Yeah,
1: I think every time there's something new, as humans, we panic a little bit that you know we the, the, the humans going to be obsolete and the machines are going to take over the world, and. think people forget that ai is already here we are already seeding our decision making every time we get into the car and put the sat nav on we are seeding our decision making to a machine it's already there so this idea that it's coming over the horizon it's already here it's Mm -hmm. just maybe coming over the horizon with a different a different suit on but i think um we we will we will start to accept it. It will become because no, nobody ever thinks when they get into the car and put the sat nav on that they are giving all this control and and they're thinking to a machine. They they they're, they're just used to it. Yeah. So it, it, it will find a place, and I think, like I said, it, it will be to do the more mundane tasks that don't require emotions, feeling, and a human angle to them.
0: Yeah, I think I think you're absolutely right. Um, I wanted to talk a little bit if you if we can about projects um and where you are at the moment in terms of you know consultancy projects delivering projects for for clients so you know we've 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 um talked about the true worth collective this network of people across tech it data cloud and digital with yourself and offering companies uh access to the network to be able to give them some advice, some guidance, some consultancy, and then potentially deliver a project. What what does a what does the lifestyle life scale, I should say, of a project look like to you these days, Craig?
1: Well, I, I go back to when you first introduced me, and you talked about all the things that I've done. And I have been involved in a lot of things, but I've always enjoyed working with experts who know more and I about should, and I
0: should say life cycle.
1: I, I life cycle, I, said... I, I know what you mean. <laughs> I I'm a firm believer. Right from the early days, when when I started my agency in 2000, I was doing the front end design. I was doing the back end coding. I was trying to learn databases. I was I was actually teaching JavaScript, which I can't believe because I can't remember any of it now. Um, and very quickly, I'm like, I'm I'm not I'm not an expert at front end design, but I understand it. I'm not an expert coder. When I brought a coder in, his his, his first comment was, "For the love of God, create." don't code again (laughs) because I kind of I kind of winged my way through it but I knew enough about it to bring an expert in and for me with projects it's about I I, over the last few years I've I've tended to go into projects when they've gone wrong people have brought me in trying to fix projects that have gone off the rails and that's where my interest in psychology came from because I started looking at why projects failed, why everybody sets off thinking they've got a great plan, great scope, great cost uh, control, and, and and why they still went wrong. And I think because we miss out an awful lot of the psychology. For me as a project manager, I like bringing in experts. I like to work with real – I love it when you work with a great front-end designer who will come up with something you think, do you know what? If I lived to be a million years old, I would never come up with that. A developer overcomes a problem with a really clever use of existing technology really knows their stuff. Um, digital marketing people. I mean, I'm blown away by Google and Analytics at the moment. I, I couldn't even get my head around. It's completely changed. So somebody that really knows that inside out. So for me, it's about building the right team of experts and bringing them together and, and, and accepting that they all know their stuff really well. So it's about building the right team. It's about understanding when we plan for projects, cognitive biases, start to creep in we're, we're we're unnecessarily unrealistically optimistic we don't tend to want to learn from our existing problems i mentioned before that i think we, we as, as a sector we chase clients and what that means is that we, we we start off with with projects that don't have the budget to ever be successful um i think we try to do too much sometimes so with projects particularly with the ones that have gone wrong my first thing is to look at the scope and say right well there's only a few things that can change here if you want this to go live on the same date we need to descope it if you wanted to go live on the date on the same date with the same scope we need more money simple as that it's quite simple but it's, it's bringing these things together and my personal belief with project management and i think this is a real drop catch within digital we don't value project management we we bring in people who to be a project manager, but then they're not a project manager, they're a project administrator, and we don't give them the ability to make decisions. As a project manager, you're a manager, you ought to be able to make decisions. But I've worked in a number of agencies where project managers are not allowed to make decisions, they're not allowed to make calls. And in a couple of cases, they don't even get to speak to the client. That's the account director's role, which I think is, is, is an awful way to do it. So we've got to value project management. But for me, it's about bringing together the experts, knitting it together, being, being quite tenacious as well, because sometimes it is just to keep the momentum going, to keep working towards trying to deliver something, being realistic, being honest, and being comfortable about being honest as well. And, that, and I think that's sadly only something that comes with experience is, is the confidence to go to a client and say, it's not on track. It's nobody's fault. It's not on track. But there's really only a few things we can do. We can either extend the deadline, we can increase the cost, we can de-scope it. So I think it's... It's being that orchestra conductor, I think a lot of the time, having the great people sticking to the plan, but making realistic plans at first and understanding that politics and psychology and people have to be taken account of. The technology is great. Your methodology is really important. But if you don't factor in human relations, human emotions, politics, stakeholders, passive aggressive behavior, all of those things, that's project management. And that is... A difficult skill to nail down, and I think a lot of agencies don't value it. They they bring in people that are comfortable with with, with communication and maybe a project administrators. It's a very difficult thing. IT does it. IT bringing people, they give them good salaries and they expect management out of them. But digital doesn't seem to do that, sadly.
0: I think that's one of the best kind of answers to a what does a project life cycle look like to you? A good one. Um, I've ever heard and also without blowing too much smoke up your backside you didn't talk about technology there most of what you discussed was about managing people and behaviors and managing expectations and just being honest with people and and very rarely do people talk about that when they're a when they're a digital technical person and I know you've said I'm not really a techie but I like to work with technical people but I guess that's the That's the key, isn't it? Bringing people together, buying into a bit of a vision and taking them on that journey and making sure that along the way, you're constantly checking in to make sure things are okay. Are you okay? Are we on track? If we're not, okay, what can we do about it? It's a pretty simple thing, but I think you're right. There's maybe because in big organizations, people are a bit scared of speaking up because they're worried about their job or they just don't want to get involved with the politics i guess that's where the beauty of bringing in um a consultancy or a collective like we've got really does benefit a client because we're not going to sugarcoat things for them we're going to tell them maybe some harsh truths but we're going to tell them things that they perhaps don't want to hear but need to and things that don't advance us but are good for the client that's that's kind of that's yeah. kind of where i want to be it's got to be ethical and credible hasn't it? it 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 has and there's nothing
1: there's nothing worse than bringing somebody in as an expert and asking for their opinion and then saying i hear what you're saying but i don't want to hear it i mean years ago back in 2015 i started with lookers and three weeks in they're expecting the website to be launched i looked at the website as as it was the work the, the work as it was went to see the agents that was delivering it and then I had to bring the person that had employed me and say we need to call a board meeting because I tell you now if that website goes live in 3 weeks it's not a little bit embarrassing it's it you're a plc this is share price changing stuff and i was shaking going into that meeting and i came out and the the the, the, the ceo md Nigel just. Tap me on the shoulder and went, Thank you for that, Craig. That's what we wanted to hear. That's what we brought you in for. But it was really, it, it was incredibly nervous because I could basically go them, go there in the first week and say, You've made a catastrophic mistake here. Please don't sign the contract. Um, but in a way, if you, if you you know, my, my advice to business would be if you're going to bring a contractor in and you pay them good day rates, value their opinions. That's what they're there for. There's no point bringing them in and saying, mm, I hear what you're saying, but we're going to keep on as we are because there's no value in that. Um, and I, I, I think sadly, it comes with a bit of age and experience, but it also comes with being given the right mandate by the owners of the business to do that, to to be that 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 voice that maybe people don't want to hear, particularly people that have been involved with the project from the start, because it's going to be awkward for them as to why they didn't see these things coming.
0: And it's, it's an age-old problem um, that... Um... That's always been there when contractors come into a business, they are seen as, oh, God, you know, he's on more money than me or he's just coming in to get paid a day rate. He's not bothered. She's not bothered about what we're trying to achieve. And there's that resentment, isn't there? So you're right. People at the top, the owners of the business, the the C-suite need to really embrace the value a contractor can bring in and not just a, a developer or a support DevOps engineer. You know, they need to value them in the same way that a project manager or an interim CIO is or an architect coming in. They need to make sure that everybody that they're going to be working with is, is on board about why they're coming into the, into the organisation. But again, that just comes down to communication, doesn't it? And being I, think really the, I think,
1: yeah, I think they, they have to be brought into an organisation that is prepared... Not only to hear what they're saying, but to listen. And there's got to be that 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 mindset with 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 the team. I I generally can't think of a of a of a place where I've come in where there's been with the people that you're working with on a day-to-day basis a resentment that you're a contractor. I think mm-hmm. actually, I mean, I look back to Lookers now and I've kept in touch with the guys, they really valued me coming in and helping them out. And yeah. that was and that and, and that was nice because the relationship had completely broken down. So for me, it was a clean slate, and one of the first things I, I tended to do in these situations. I did it when I worked at an e-commerce business a few years ago. They brought me in because the relationship with the developer had completely broken down. So I went and sat with the people in the business, and then I went and sat with the agency, and I sat there with the agency and said, "Right, Chatham House rules. What what's what what goes on here stays on here. What is really knocking you about my the, the business I'm working on behalf of?" what are they doing that's that's ruined this relationship? It won't go back to them, but I need to understand your frustrations with them as much as our frustrations with you. And that gives you real insight. And yeah. then I, I actually built a really good relationship with their project manager. And we were thick as thieves because we, you know, he he wanted that particular client to be more easy to deal with and the business I was working for, I wanted the agency to be easier to deal with. So in a way it was kind of project managers Project managers union, we got together and said, right, we, we're both trying to make the same thing, which is a more harmonious relationship. How do we do this? And that's nice when you're working with with other project managers that have got an experience. But that just comes with an experience of knowing that you can't you can't just see one, one person's point of view. And it is easier when you're a contractor because you are employed for the, the, the business, but you're not employed to kind of buy them. So you, you're, yeah. you're giving a little bit more leeway to dig under and see in the weeds what the real problems are.
0: I think we could talk all afternoon about this, Craig. Um, and there's so much we've not covered. So I think we're going to have to have you back um, for another another chat, and we can we can get a, an agenda together and and really sort of maybe talk about some burning issues because I think there's a lot there, especially in the last ten minutes or so, where we've talked about the nuances of of actually delivering a project and how psychology plays a part. And I'd love to talk to you in a bit more detail about that, actually. I think that's really important. Um, but I really thank you today for your time and thank you for coming on the podcast. And I hope you enjoyed it.
1: I have some thanks for which you give me the opportunity
0: to, to wax lyrical about digital. <laughs> um, wasn't that a, wasn't that a company you worked for? <laughs> oh, wax lyrical. <laughs> it sounds it sounds like a digital agency. Um, and I, oh, I, I remember some of the crazy there is a, there names. There was a Wax Digital, I think. Was there? Yeah, I think I, so. I, I remember things
1: like purple turtle and blue jellyfish. It seemed to be that you just find a, a random animal in a random colour, put them together, and that was the name of your agency. There were some fantastic <laughs> names back in those days.
0: I'm sure if you went on ChatGPT and, and asked them to spit out some uh, unusual digital media agency names or creative agency names. I, and- I might do it.
1: <laughs> have, have, have a look at Wayback Machine as well, because... Um, A lot of these agencies that were around 15, 20 years ago, if you look at Wayback machine, their old websites are still backed up and and archived. So you'll find some of these little gems of of strange names and strange businesses.
0: Well, I think there's, there's a blog there, isn't there? We used, (laughs) we used chat GPT to come up with some new um, outlandish names for creative agencies. Um, I'll I'll, I'll ask it and let you know. Yeah. Craig, thank you again. Really, really appreciate you, uh, you joining us. Um, We'll have you back again and uh, take care and enjoy the rest of your day. You too. Thanks a lot, Sam. See you. Bye-bye. Thank you for listening to this episode of the True Worth Tech Talks podcast. It means a lot. And if you've got this far, we want to reward your patience. So send me an email to sam at trueworthconsulting.com and put the word Eric in the subject field. Put your home address in the bulk of the email. Uh, We won't store that information anywhere Um, and um, we'll send you a special gift in the post as a thank you. Um, Of course, any feedback will be greatly appreciated. Tell us what you think and what you want to hear about in our up and coming episodes and we will try our best to make that happen now if this gets uh, really popular um, I'm not sure if it will but we might have to change this message but for now let's see how many people are actually listening all the way to the end and if that's you thanks again and I look forward to speaking to you on the next episode take care bye for now